Welcome to MC Squared, a podcast that brings minds together to cultivate incredible ideas. This podcast's primary focus is dedicated to showing off highlights and discussing possible applications of some of the most innovative work that academics have spent tireless hours pioneering. Join us as we discuss the newest advances in technology so you can start unpackaging the marvels of a scientific world. I am your host, Jonathan Kramer, and today I'm joined by my studio producer, Constantine Milam. I won't provide too much introduction into today's episode, because I want you all to be as surprised as I was in discussing the complexities of sound. The one question I want to leave you all with before we begin our conversation is this. How does your brain transform sound to help you understand where you are? To get the full effect of this episode, I would recommend listening with headphones or earbuds or earphones? You know, those little mini ear things. I didn't really know what to call them. Anyways, without further ado, it is time to explore sound. Today we feature an exciting guest who has spent his career elaborating the complex nature of neural circuitry. His name is Dr. Pollock, and he has been declared a UT expert for his exemplary teaching skills in neuroscience. He has received numerous awards for his work and contributions to auditory neuroscience, and has served as a visiting professor in Spain, India, and Germany. Without further ado, I would like to introduce Dr. Pollock, so that we can begin to understand how we, and many other mammalian animals, interpret the different sound vibrations present in our atmosphere. So how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thank you. How are you? I'm doing awesome. I kind of want to start off today's episode just giving a brief background of how you got into all this neural circuitry, how you got into neuroscience, why you want to study these species that exhibit specific traits. And I guess we can start off with your degree at University of Maryland, right? Correct. Yeah, I have my PhD from the Department of Physiology at the University of Maryland Medical School. And then I did my postdoctoral work at Yale University. And then I came here and I've been here ever since. It's been a long time. So tell me a little bit about your journey in academics, how you started in anatomy, and then transitioned over into neuroscience. I wanted to understand a little bit more about your initial passion to study such a complex subject material and where it came from. I really got interested as a freshman in college about how the brain regulates very primal forms of behavior, like uh, aggression and sex and appetite and things of that sort. And that's really what I wanted to study. The problem is that once I I got into it, which I did very intensely at Yale University, I realized that the behavior was so complicated that you really couldn't understand how the brain controlled it. At least in those days, it was much too complicated. So the question was then to, to choose a system where you could really begin perhaps to understand how the circuits created the features that enabled you to either behave or to perceive certain kinds of stimuli. And I happened by serendipity to get hooked up with someone who worked on bats in the auditory system. And bats were favorable to me because they were just about the only animal that people worked with on the auditory system where they knew what signals were important to the animal. And that, that's, a, 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 to me at least, and, and I, I, it's a fundamentally important feature of any sensory system if you want to understand how it works. You've got to understand what it's designed to process. And we didn't know that in cats and rats and all these other animals, but we knew it in bats. And that's really why I decided to work with them 
and uh, to try and understand how their nervous system enables them to, if you will, represent or take sound and form images of the environment with sound. That is how they can see their world through their ears. And after several years of study, probably 10 or 15, I, I came to the conclusion I'm never going to understand that. It's just too complicated. But what I came to the conclusion about is that their auditory systems, as far as I could tell, structurally and physiologically and in every other way, was fundamentally mammalian. And that reminded me of a, a very important principle called the Krog principle. The Krog, Enel Krog was a, was a Nobel laureate. And he pointed out that for every system that you want to study, there's an ideal organism to choose to study it. And basically, the bigger, the better. Uh, certain animals have exaggerated systems, and those exaggerated systems are much easier to study than systems that are less exaggerated or smaller because you can manipulate them. And they nevertheless should have uh, the basic properties and the basic features of all systems. Nature should not have invented various new mechanisms for every single animal. The mechanisms are constant, but they're just exaggerated, which provides a real opportunity for scientists to exploit these things. And that, that's why I chose to study bats, and I chose to study them, uh, at least for the last 20 or more years of my career, as models of the mammalian auditory system. Okay, so there's a lot that I want to unpackage there. Okay. <laughs> there's a lot of uh, information, and, and so I kind of wanted to create a base plate for our audience members so they can understand when they have these different types of stimulus, like sound, for instance. We're talking about bats, and they use echolocation to essentially simulate their environment that they live in. And perhaps this question is way more complex than I can even fathom, but Say we have this bat specimen, we have it receiving a bunch of different sound stimuli, and if we were able to take some kind of microscopic view into the bat specimen's brain, what processes do you think we'd be able to see? I don't know. The problem is that echolocation is what's called an active process. In other words, the animal has to be behaving. It has to emit a signal, and for that does something to the brain. I, I, I think I know certain things that it does. I don't know everything, but it does a lot of things, and it basically preps the brain to receive the echoes that it's going to get back in a few minutes. That's really, really, really hard to study neurophysiologically. It's an awake, behaving animal. That's tough. So normally what you do is a substitute for that, and that substitute doesn't really work. And that is you present an initial signal, and you say, aha, that's the pulse. And then I'm going to present subsequent signals, and I'm going to say, well, that's, those are the echoes. But they're not really pulses and echoes. They're things that you, you've, you've done. And I, I, when I first started working in Germany, I worked with a, a man who was an unbelievably uh, talented investigator, and he had a particular species of bat that he was studying, and he was able to do that, that is to study animals that were behaving, and he can control the behavior. And I remember sitting in on and conducting a few experiments with him, and I was just stunned to see the difference in the response of individual neurons that we were recording um, when the bats were actively behaving versus the same neurons and their responses when we just 
passively presented sound to them. And that told me, you're not really going to understand this system, at least echolocation, unless you work with awake behaving animals, and that's difficult to do. So when you say awake, you mean consciously aware that they're providing some kind of action into their brain? Sure. I mean, normally what a lot of people used to do, they don't do it so much anymore, but they used to, you anesthetize the animal. They're, you know, basically with a barbiturate, uh, just like they anesthetize you when you have a, an operation or something. The animal's sitting there, it doesn't move. And it's, it's, it's uh, completely anesthetized. It's not awake. And that gives you an advantage. It doesn't move. So you, your ability to record from individual neurons is greatly, greatly enhanced. Whereas if it's awake and moving, oh my God, it can do all kinds of things. The brain moves around, you lose contact with the neurons. And it's much more difficult to do. But on the other hand, uh, you know, you, you, when you work with a, an awake behaving animal, you derive a lot of advantages that you don't with an anesthetized animal. Okay, so you must have worked with quite a few different bats. And did you work with a lot of different species of bats? Or no, just two or three. Just two or three? Yeah, but they were great species. <laughs> okay, now when you're observing this, I want to put this more so in a physical perspective. Yeah. If I'm to observe it, how would I actually monitor these these little neurons that contain them. Oh, well, th- th- those, are, those are basically standard techniques that okay. we use. They're, they're used on an industrial basis today. But they're cool. They're really cool. It's a unique form of science. So you, you take this, this either a piece of metal that's etched to a very fine tip and is insulated except for the tip, or else you can you just pull glass. You, you could buy this commercially. You put it in a puller, and it pulls it to a very, very fine tip, and you fill the glass with a salt solution that's conductive. And you put it into the brain, and you have this device which lowers the electrode in small steps of about one one millionth of a meter at a time. And at the same time, you're presenting sound to the animal, all different kinds of sounds. And when the electrode, the tip, comes very near to an individual neuron, you pick up its electrical discharge. It's called an action potential. And you can see it on the oscilloscope, and you can hear it because you put it into a speaker, and it sounds like a pop. And you hear pop, 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 pop. And this, this, this beautiful stereotyped signal is seen on the oscilloscope. And it's stereotyped because it's the same every single time. And basically, you're conversing with a neuron. You're talking to a living cell in a living animal in real time. And you say to it, hello, Mr. Neuron, which frequency do you like? And you present all these tone bursts with different frequencies, and it talks back to you with the vigor of its action potential production. And then you ask, well, which, which ear stimulates you? Do you receive excitation from one, inhibition from the other? Uh, which, what kind of signals do you like? Do you like tones best, or do you like other kinds of signals? And you, you go through this whole repertoire, and the computer records all the responses to each signal, and, you know, you get to know the neuron. And then you go to its neighbor, and you say the same thing. Hello, Mr. Neuron, uh, which fig- frequency do you like? And what kind of sound do you like? And you go through the whole thing. And you do this for neuron after neuron after neuron, and after a long time, you, you get to know what the population does, how it responds, and then after you get to know them very well and how they behave, you can start asking other questions. Like, fine, you behave that way, but what circuits impinge upon you to create those particular properties? That is, the neurons in the higher levels of the auditory system become selective. That is, they only respond to certain stimuli and not to others. Well, how does that come about? 
And who from the lower regions, which lower regions, play upon you to do this? How are we going to dissect all of this stuff out to see how the circuits work? And that's a lot of fun. Aha. Uh-huh. So you just get to play with a bunch of different sounds. Now, I'm sure you're not just using some kind of iPhone speaker. Is there a specific type of speaker you're using? Now, it has, to, it has to be a good speaker. I have to know which frequencies it will pass and which it won't pass and, and what its composition is. But then I, I have uh, this wonderful thing called the computer. And the computer will generate anything I tell it to generate. And I can have all different kinds of signals, and I can just press buttons and say to the computer, present these signals. And it does. And every time it does, the neuron will respond or not respond, and I will record its response or lack of response to each of the stimuli that I give. And thus I get to know the neuron. When you feel like you've really gotten to know an array of all these neurons, what can you actually utilize these neurons in the, the conversations that you've there well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an exact, a specific example, okay? So one of the questions that I've devoted almost my entire career to is how does the brain know where a sound comes from in space? Now, every animal that hears, but every animal that hears, is able to do that. You, you know and can localize a sound source in space, both in terms of its, its azimuth that is along the horizontal as well as its elevation. You know exactly where it comes from. Some, some animals can do it with better precision than others, but bats do it pretty well and humans do it pretty well. So the way you do this is on the basis of the cues that are presented to the two ears. That is, the, the internal ear, the cochlea, doesn't map space, it it breaks the sound up into its various frequency components, and it maps frequency. So what that means, for example, if I give you a signal of a certain frequency, say a thousand cycles per second, and I present it directly ahead, some neurons that are tuned to that frequency will respond to it. Well, if I move it over, say, 45 degrees to the right, the same neurons will respond to it. It's, it's the same frequency. That's what they're tuned to. They don't care about space. So the nervous system has to compute space, and it has to compute space from certain cues. So the idea is if you take a sound and present it from directly ahead, and you have two ears, and all animals that hear have two ears, then the sound arrives at the two ears at exactly the same time, and it has the same loudness at the two ears. And if I move the sound, say, 45 degrees to one side, it arrives at one ear earlier than the other ear. The ear it arrives earlier at is louder than the ear that it arrives later at. The brain can compute these two signals, the differences in the arrival time of the two ears and the intensity of the two ears. Well, exactly how does it do this and where does it do this? And, you know, that stuff is pretty well known. It's been known for a long time. And then the question becomes, well, exactly how do you do that? How does the neuron respond to these different things? Uh, as you vary, for example, the difference in intensity of the two ears. And then you might ask, fine, how does it do that? Um, where is that then sent after it's computed? And we know where it's sent, and you record from the neurons farther up the nervous system, and they respond the same way, and you say, well, wait a minute. There must be some kind of change that's occurring. What is occurring? What, what is happening to those neurons? And you begin to ask more and more sophisticated questions, and you get, depending upon the question that you ask, 
you get a particular answer. So it, it's it's sort of like, if you will, uh, interrogation, if you will. <laughs> uh, you, you have some people who are very good at eliciting information from other people, and that's what you're trying to do depending upon the questions that you ask. Right? You've got to ask the right questions if you're going to get the answer. And it's the same thing with neurons. You've got to ask the right questions of them, and if you do, they'll give you an answer. And then you can determine how you proceed from there. Hey guys, thanks for listening. If you like this podcast and want to support it, feel free to subscribe or you can leave a rating on iTunes. Every five-star rating really helps our podcast grow. You can also find us at mcsquaredpodcast.com. And now, it's time to get back to the show with Professor George Pollock. So I have a question based on what we were talking about previously. That is how our brain interprets sound information. What if you isolate the noise to a specific ear, and what kind of effect does that have? What do you mean the noise to a specific ear? If you have sound and you isolate it so that only one of your eardrums can actually hear it, how does our brain actually interpret that only one is being understood, and that it's only coming in from the right side as opposed to the left? What you're really referring to is binaural hearing. Binaural means hearing from the two ears, and that's incredibly important in all realms, uh, even in realms that you normally think about. It's fundamental for knowing where a sound is, but even if you know where it is, the timbre and the whole quality of the sound is influenced very much by binaural hearing. So what you can then do is ask neurons in various places, Mr. Neuron, um, if I present the sound to one ear, how do you respond? And if I present the sound to the other ear, how do you respond? And then if I present the sound to both ears, how do you respond? And then how do you respond if I change interoral features? Makes one sound louder to one ear, earlier, and do all kinds of different things. And you can see a lot of information by doing things like that. Hmm. So you're able to create these, these discrepancies between ears. And then would you be able to map out your spatial surroundings based on just the sound that your brain's interpreting? So say, for instance, you had no idea what the space was like around you. You have no idea what environment these bats were in, but you had their brain. You had all the data on their brain. Would you be able to take their brain data and then map out exactly what their surrounding is from their ability to use echolocation? The question that you're asking involves... How do we form maps of space in your brain? That's a very, very active area of investigation. One of my colleagues here at the University of Texas uh, studies that, Laura Colgan, and she had worked with uh, two people in Norway, and uh, two years ago they won the Nobel Prize for their work on this. So a good deal is known about it. They're called place cells in the brain, but they're not in the auditory system. They're in a place called the hippocampus. But that's a whole whole different story. What I just want to know is if you hear a sound, can your brain identify where in space that sound comes from and what cues are used and how does the population of cells which receive information from the two ears, how does the population response indicate to you where the sound is located? So that's when you use your 
bineural sure. application. And, and so now you have these bats. They're swarming around this room, doing all their voluntary, arbitrary motions. How do you study this in a way that you I can... I don't. I have to study them when they're... St- Held firmly, they're not Held moving. Firmly. Okay. No, I have to simply. The, the, the problem is, you have to simplify questions. You have these grand questions that you want to ask, but you can't get answers to them. So, so the whole trick in science, at least in neuroscience, of the science that I know, and biology in general, is asking the right question. And what you then do is you start with the simplest questions you can ask. You're not the most complicated, or else you're not going to find an answer. It's going to be a mess. You're not going to know how to interpret it. So you start with simple questions, and you work your way up from there, and you understand, you, you should understand, that the answers that you're getting are by no means the whole, the whole answers to the questions, but they do answer part of it. And you build, 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 and that's why it becomes really interesting and it's never really solved. Well, let me give you an example. So I, I, I'm going to ask a question, a really simple question. How do you localize a sound in space? How do you know where it comes from? Okay, so I know the neurons respond to the, the difference in intensity. Let's take a higher frequency sound. All right. But now I have to know that the sound that comes from different positions in space can sometimes generate exactly the same intensity difference of the two ears. So what I have to do is I have to know how sounds that are tuned to one particular frequency, how they respond to sounds at different places in space. So I can do this by presenting sounds at the two ears and then presenting sounds out in space. And I start to see this. And I know how different frequencies are processed and how different frequencies are represented. And then I have to start asking questions of the ear because the ear is extremely important. It distorts the sound enormously. I mean, the, the, the things that you hang your earrings on are not for hanging earrings. They're for modifying the sound and enables you to localize accurately a sound in space. So That's due to the uh, Well, the let me give connect. you an example. Yeah. All right? So say you have, let's say you have three frequencies. Let's take it even simpler, two. Frequency one and frequency two. And I have this loudspeaker out here in any position in space. You choose it. And it's going to stand there. And I'm going to present sound one and sound two. And those two sounds are going to be presented at exactly the same intensity, the same loudness, right? But your ear is going to do something different to sound one and to sound two. So sound one might be louder in your ear than sound two, even though they're broadcast at the same loudness. And the difference in intensity of two ears will be very different, okay? And that will change with each position in space. So I have to compare the neural activity produced by each frequency for different positions in space in order to know where that's coming from. So, 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 now, now, so now let's say I solve this problem. Right. I can do this in a, in a soundproof room. We don't live in soundproof rooms. You're just talking about noise. How does the system handle signals and noise? I don't know. That's a whole new problem. How does, the, how does the system handle not a single sound in space, but multiple sounds in space? You're in there, lots of people are talking. You're getting lots of sounds impinging upon you. How do you focus on one? How do you localize that? I mean, how do you deal with this? So you start off with a simple question. How do you deal with, with, with just localizing a tone? 
How do you then deal with localizing a more complex signal? And then how do you deal with multi, uh, handling signals in noise and in multiple sound sources? This becomes very complicated, <laughs> extremely complicated. Right. And then also, what if your specific species, I mean, I think I'm pretty tone deaf. I, I can't uh, register between the discrepancy between specific tone A and tone B, for instance. How do you manage the outliers in that case where you have a species that has all these great traits but now he this part of his brain can't actually interpret this sound i don't know <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know how to deal with that yeah there's just a lot of different questions to ask I here I, I don't i don't know you know I, unless I, you're deaf in certain frequencies but that's a whole different question right <laughs> you don't want i don't want to deal with animals that can't hear certain frequencies or deaf uh, a lot of people try to look at that question and what they have to then do is look at the animal and maybe do the experiments and then deafen parts of its frequency range and see what changes. But that's a whole new, a whole new area of study. Whole new ball game, yeah. yeah, it's a whole new ball game. Wow. Okay. Wow. You know, it's. I think it's really interesting because I read this article. It was called "Wait But Why" and it was on uh, brain machine interfaces. And I get to the bottom of the article. They're talking about this really cool new technologies. They're going to integrate. You know, computer systems, silicon chips with the brain. We're going to be able to have the highest level of computing power, be able to interpret all different types of stimulus, sound, and this whole new light. And I get to the end, and then it says, unfortunately, understanding the brain, if understanding the brain completely was a full 1,600 meters, we're about two centimeters in and understanding that. What do you think about that? I think it's probably right. <laughs> every, every time... I spent 45 years doing that. I had a lot of fun. We understand, we understand far more than I ever thought we were going to understand. But anytime you ask a question, even a simple question, even if you understand the circuit and the cells, there's the next level of question. How does it work? How does it work? And then you ask, well, how do the molecules in the cell enable it to work? What kind of information is it getting? There, there's then other kinds of information or other kinds of systems that we know practically nothing about. Uh, systems that allow you to pay attention or to focus on things. We don't know anything about these things. I mean, that's what makes neuroscience so, I think, biology in general so exciting that every time you think you understand something, and you might understand that on a certain level, the next level you don't. It reacts completely differently. It's, I don't know about... But there, other explanations for these things. <laughs> they are so remarkably subtle and nuanced and incredibly complicated that it's it's really amazing. So what kind of what is one of the most fundamental questions that you were able to answer during your research the last 45 years? And you, you still think back to your like, got that question. What is that question for you? It, it was a circuit question. And I, I can't describe it. You'd have to understand the circuitry. But we, we began to understand how a really complex piece of circuitry operates for encoding and representing the location of a sound in space. And as we began to really delve into it, it became clear that the system is used and designed not to process a single sound, but to enable you to process multiple sounds. And what I mean by that is there is a phenomenon in audition uh, called the precedence effect. And what this means, and we're experiencing it probably right now, when, we, when I speak or when you speak, my sound goes out there, you receive it, but it's also bouncing off all these walls, and you're getting all these echoes. 
You don't pay attention to the echoes. You don't hear them as special sounds, as separate sounds. You integrate them, and they contribute to the volume and timbre of the sound that you're hearing. And we, we figured out uh, the circuitry, at least the initial parts of the circuitry, that enable you to do this. That is, to focus in on one sound and not be distracted by many others. So it was met with great skepticism because it was discovered in bats, and there's a large segment of my colleagues who don't believe that bats really represent the mammalian nervous system. Others do, but a lot of them don't. And it turned out Honda picked this up, and they were interested in it for their um, for the robots. Honda. Honda. They were interested in it for verbal command of robots. And I have these colleagues in Europe, and he had a student who was working in his lab, and he was an engineer, and he was happened to be working for Honda. And they had a problem. When they gave a verbal command to the robot, the robot could interpret it, but not in an anechoic room and not in a, a reverberant room. Mm-hmm. It just got confused. So he took the system that we, we discovered and he incorporated those principles into the robot and it worked. Oh, no, no way. It, he was so excited. We were excited. Um, <laughs> it was just amazing. Uh, it worked. And these robots now, I mean, this isn't the only thing the robot, the robots are complicated, but this is one component that enabled them to, to basically overcome this problem that I had no idea I was going to do this, and I had no interest in, in solving that problem. It just emerged from all the research, and that was a lot of fun. Now, kind of jumping into the future, where do you find the industry of neuroscience, and where do you see it perhaps in 10 years now? I know everyone's talking about artificial intelligence and the merging of humans and that everyone's going to become some kind of cyborg-oriented being. Uh, what, what kind of level of accuracy do you find that with the I current no state? I have no idea. I don't know. It's That's all science fiction. You think so? Yeah. The most exciting things I think that I see of happening is the creation of prosthetic devices. And the, the best prosthetic device that has been created is a cochlear implant, allowing deaf to actually hear in ways that I would never have ever believed possible. But now what they're also doing is something even... I think equally exciting, not even more exciting, and that is they're creating prosthetic devices for people who are quadriplegic, who've broken their necks. And the way they do this is simply unbelievable. It's stunning that they they make technically these tiny, tiny little devices that can record from maybe a hundred or more neurons in a part of your cortex the part of your brain that controls movement that's what they the motor take out cortex. a chunk of your skull and plant it on the top of the surface of the brain they have to remove a chunk of your skull and then implant the electrode into your brain and they put the skull back on and they have right. a device with all the wires coming out that's screwed into it and then they attach those, those wires to a computer and in the initial version of this this version is pretty old now it's almost a year and a half old What they do is they have the person look at a television screen and see an arm, and they say to the person, imagine you're moving the arm the way the arm is moving. And they record the pattern of activity because the activity in the brain is unaffected 
by their by their uh, severing of the connections to their spinal cord. And so the computer learns that this particular pattern of activity means the person wants to do this with their arm, although they can't, all right? Then what they do is they take this sleeve and they put it on the person's arm. And the sleeve has a whole bunch of little bare spots which can pass current and stimulate the muscles. And the computer then generates a whole pattern of activity randomly until it gets the right pattern that makes the person do a certain thing, right? And they then have patterns that do a whole bunch of things. Now, they simply unite the pattern of activity that says the person wants to do this with the pattern of stimulation of the muscles that makes the person do this. You can't believe it. I mean, I've seen the movies. Uh, this was first published in Nature about a year and a half ago. I've seen the movies of these guys. I, I, I mean, it's stunning. It's just stunning to see this. And that's just understanding the neural circuitry. No, it's really not even doing that. All it's doing is recording the activity of a small population when the person is intending to do something. And that population, which presumably innervates the, the muscles to make you do it, is what makes you move so but he can't move but the computer knows what the pattern is yeah, and it then stimulates the wow. set of muscles to make a move wow that's crazy it, it's 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 no you know intellectual or or, or or feat of of understanding the nervous system but oh my god to do something like that for a person who i mean i've seen the reactions of these people they're you see their faces, it's just unbelievable. They've never done anything. They've been paralyzed for years and years and years. All of a sudden, they can do these things. Well, with that, I think that'll conclude today's episode. I'll let okay. my audience ponder this possible technological revolution where the technology integrates into the brain and all that jazz. But thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. And to all my listeners, stay tuned for the next episode of MC Squared. If you like this podcast and are eager to learn more, check out our website at mcsquaredpodcast.com. There you'll find all the learning visuals that we talked about in this episode and links to our guest's website. If you want to stay updated with us, subscribe on our contact page for the latest news. If you have any burning questions or ideas for the show, shoot us an email and we will be happy to respond. Thank you for listening and be sure to share this episode with your friends on any social media website that tickles your fancy. Let's work together to get everyone scienced up in the world of discovery. P.S. All music in this podcast has been brought to you by Stalkercot. You can find them on SoundCloud at Stalkercot. That's S-N-O-C-K-E-R space C-O-T.